everybody. This is CJ French from Twisted Sister, and you're listening to the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Uh, well, first of all, I'd just like to say that reading um, the outline of your book, I had no idea that you were such an integral part of Twisted Sister. Um, obviously, I know who you are and that you were in the band, but I didn't really realize that you were leading the band. How did that come about? Uh, by default, over time. <laughs> You know, I was one of the five original members. That fell apart after two years. There was another version that fell apart after a year. There was another version that fell apart. You know, and as the parts were falling apart, um, I kept rebuilding it. And uh, that's what the book essentially is about, the art of reinvention. Um, You know, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. What entrepreneurs do is they either create something that's never been seen before and are willing to risk everything in their life to show the world that or they want to improve an existing model well there was an existing model of rock bands before Twisted Sister but we wanted to improve on one which was the Dolls which we all thought were just the worst and thought you know it could be a better version of the Dolls and so that was the original that was the catalyst that started it all oh that's so cool I remember when I was man I can't even remember I must have been like 10 maybe 8 really young and you guys were on tour with Iron Maiden during the Peace of Mind tour, I think it was. Yeah, that was 13 years after I started the band. Wow. So <laughs> the band's celebrating its 49th anniversary this December. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm not trying to make it seem like a long time ago, because to me it seems like yesterday. Um, my parents wouldn't let me go into the show because I was too young. But I remember sitting in, like, the, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I was sitting in the... Um, like on the side where like the gangway where you could buy merch and everything and I could hear you guys playing and I just couldn't like that was almost more of a stimulating experience than seeing the show at that age because all I could think about was man I've seen them on MTV it must be crazy right now (laughs) you know (laughs) was was that was that like a real breakthrough moment for you guys when you got on that tour you know, the band had already been together for years and played thousands of shows, so to us it was just another show, another gig. I mean, it was good to have the tour, but the album had already broken by that point. You know, the, the album was already platinum by the time the tour started. So um, so we were well on our way. You know, my father had died the day the album went platinum, which was October 21st, 84. We didn't start that tour until, I think, after Thanksgiving. And that tour went on for about six months. Um, and it was a great tour, you know, without a doubt. Canada was a phenomenal market for the band. But, um, you know, the band had already been through so much that, uh, to me, it was... I, I don't want to uh, diminish the impact, because we knew what the impact was, but how it affected us or me personally versus how it affected somebody else was very, very different. You know, to me, it wasn't a coming out. I mean, I already, like I said, I had probably played over 6,000 performances at that point, me personally. Wow. Going back to 73, so, you know, it was another show, and the band was really great and live, and really great live, so we knew exactly what we were doing. Um, 
But, uh, you know, in terms of nights where I went, oh, my God, or situations where I went, oh, my God, um, it, that, there were plenty of other ones that had that feeling. That one wasn't it. That was just a, let's get this tour going because there's another tour coming and another one coming and another one coming and another one coming and another one coming. However, Canada per capita it was one of the biggest, most successful countries for the band. So I don't know if you know, but you sell 10% of the record you sell in America and Canada. So if you sell a million, you sell 100,000. And you had enough. Absolutely. You know, we've sold, I think Stay Hungry sold 700,000. Wow. In Canada, wow. which far exceeds the million to one ratio of Stay Hungry to the United States. So uh, I cannot, uh, you know, much music really just fell in love with Twisted Sister. And we were it one is. of the few bands that did. And when much music fell in love with an American band, they really fell in love with an American band because by law, you guys were restricted to just showing a certain small percentage of American, non Canadian music. And we realized we got an end there. Yeah, it, it, it's actually more like you have to have to play 15% Canadian content. Yeah, well, I think back in there, there was even more, you know. Oh, wow. wow. Not, not, not that many bands, we were told how fortunate it was that we broke through this this very, very tight curtain. And uh, and so we had an amazing, it was an amazing time for sure. You know, I do remember that tour extremely well. It was the coldest weather I'd ever experienced in my life. I got to Winnipeg. I never saw, I didn't know. The only thing good about 40 Below Zero, I guess, is that there's no drug dealers outside, you know, because it's so fucking cold. I mean, yeah, I, when cold. I... When, when I saw the temperature on the bank thermometer across the street from the hotel when we came in and it said 40 below, I made a joke. I went, that's not really 40 below. And they went, oh, it is 40 below. And when we walked outside between the bus and the hotel, I got a freezer burn on my arm and that was exposing it for about 30 seconds. So that's I went crazy. And I said to myself, man, you people are out of your freaking mind. How do you... How does one, and I realized, how does one handle it? Well, I got to Edmonton. You had the largest mall I'd ever seen in my life. In <laughs> um, that mall, and I said, well, that's obviously what happens is, you know, you do everything in the mall. You live there, you ice skate there, you go to the circus there. <laughs> Who wants to be outside? Oh, my God. It was really amongst the most, you know, I do, like I say, plus, do you remember, do you remember Terry Fox, the guy who had cancer that walked across yeah. Canada? We passed his caravan on that tour. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. We drove by the Rock. He, he was going. He was. He had a Winnebago. He had a support team with him. Yeah, but, and uh, we passed it. And I said, "Wow, man, we're passing Terry Fox." I read about that guy. Oh, it's unbelievable what what he was doing. Girl, I also bought the warmest coat. Wait a minute. Let me just continue. I because I was so cold. I bought the warmest coat in my life in Edmonton at a mall. <laughs> it was it was made out of rabbit. And that sucker lasted me for like 20 years. And, and people said, man, that's the warmest coat. I said, yeah, well, it's from Canada. <laughs> and ain't no cold, man. Trust me. <laughs> no shit, man. That coat, I mean, that coat just eventually died on me. But it was the greatest investment of my life. People said, I mean, really, would you buy a car to, to houses? I said, no, I bought a fucking rabbit coat. Canada. <laughs> Best damn coat I ever owned in my life. Nice. <laughs> Great. Oh, my God. You're reminding me of why I moved to Vancouver, you know, uh, so many years ago, because I had to get the hell out of that cold. <laughs> now, nice. now I'm in D.C., but it's, uh, I'm in the States now, but uh, man, oh, man, it's cold. He's not like... It's cold, dude. It's cold. It's cold. Yeah. Anyway. Like my parents are like, are you going to come home for Christmas? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I gotta, wait, but I got to tell you something even weirder, right? So many years later, when the you know the reunited tour, when the band got back together in 2003, we played a um, 
a festival in Edmonton. Um, that, that was a two-week a two-week music festival because you guys, that's what you do in like Europe and Canada. You have these two-week events, and it was in the parking lot of the um, your hockey arena there, yeah. as a matter of fact. And uh, and so so we get on the run the bill, and I believe the Edmonton's were on the bill. You know, like all these weird acts. Um, it was a two-week long affair. Anyway, we pull in to the parking lot and we get into our um, we get into our uh, trailer and I you know it was, in the, it was in August you know and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I get out of the trailer and I'm walking around I'm looking at the trailer directly across the trailer park from us like like maybe 30 feet and there's a sign on the door and it said Bob the Builder <laughs> and, I, and, and I thought oh that must be an alternative band out of you know Edmonton <laughs> you know, Bob the Builder sounds like an alternative band, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I say to some security guard, I go, so well, who's this band, Bob the Builder? And they go, it's not a band. It's a guy who's got a kitty show on TV. And I went, wow. A guy's got a kitty show on TV? And we're playing on the same bill? <laughs> That's like and Spinal he's, Tap. He's on, he's on, he's on now. And I went, what do you mean he's on now? And he goes, yeah, he's on now. Walk over to the arena. So I walk over to the arena, go backstage, and there's the guy doing his whole Bob the Builder stick with 20,000 little five-year-old kids in the audience with parents. And I had a heart attack. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? Like, what do you mean? We're going on after Bob the Builder? You got to be kidding me. And the promoter comes over and goes, no, 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 trust me, trust me, there's four hours before you guys go on, and and there's plenty of dirt bags here. Oh in, my God. <laughs> and so I put on a hoodie and walked around, and and there was like 100,000 people in, the, in that, you know, the whole area there, and then there was plenty of plenty of our people, you know? And finally, oh, yeah. the Bob the Builder people filtered out, and our people came in, otherwise I was can have a heart attack so wow that, that must have been Klond Klondike days probably where they showed yeah big... that was it yeah that was yeah. it yeah yeah crazy that that was... yeah like around 2000 2007 2008 somewhere around there like yeah you're bringing me way back here <laughs> <laughs> so you know when people say how do you remember these things you remember certain things there's traumatic experiences in your life you know oh yeah <laughs> yeah well I would imagine that would be fairly traumatic you know, it's like, holy fuck, am I reliving Spinal Tap? <laughs> well, you know, I, as I write about in the book, the worst gig we ever did was we played on a bill with a, ch a chimpanzee named Mr. Jiggs. And, <laughs> and, and and actually, we opened for Mr. Jiggs. He oh, my God. Writer, and he went, he went over better than we did, so. Nice. So, talking about the book, we could bring this back to the book for a second, because that's why we're here, I guess. So... When I was reading the book, I think the thing that stood out to me the most was your approach or your perspective on assholes in the business. And I actually highlighted a quote here that I think is probably one of my favorites out of it. One of my pet peeves in the business has always been those dysfunctional people whose lives are dedicated to making other people miserable. I hate them. They destroy people and they do not cultivate love. How did you come about that perspective? Because that's a whole different perspective than... I know you talk about your your wife's. You went to a, a seminar with your wife. Is that pretty much where it ended up? Well, I mean, I just don't run my business that way, you right. know. 
And I, and I, and as I ran into scumbags in the business, and most of them were, the, were record executives who were way worse than musicians. Like, right. Way, way worse. They had, a lot, they had a lot more power, and they were a lot more dysfunctional, and they were really brutally horrible human beings. I realized that um, they're like beaten children, so they get beaten, and then they have to beat people. They think it, you know, it makes them feel better, and and. Um, and the problem with dysfunctional people is that their success, they lay directly to their dysfunction. So it just emboldens them to be more pricky than they are. And I just, you know, choose to not have to uh, inflict that kind of stupidity on me. Right. It's avoidable. Because they're just, they're just awful human beings. So, you know, you're, you know, what's interesting is you brought that piece up because I'm, a lot of people bring different things in the book up to me as they, as they interview sure. me. You're the first person to key in on that one. But that was the that was how Steve Farber, my co-writer, and I kind of met on the grounds of that phrase because he his books are all about love and the mark in the workplace and love is just damn good business and 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 that's what Steve does. So you know we kind of hit it off that way and he just was surprised it was coming from a heavy metal musician and I said well because I'm not really a heavy metal musician I'm a business guy I have to play in a heavy metal band you right know, the difference I'm not really a musician I'm a businessman that plays guitar and. That's a distinction that I became more aware of as time went on. I think that leads, I mean, that is so different from the, the normal business model, especially like growing up when probably around your age, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. You know, that was the typical sleazebag promoter, sleazebag, whatever. And when you approach it this way, it's a whole different, it opens up a whole different thing. And I think it's even more relevant nowadays, right, with the way the music business has changed and how fucked up everything is. Well, every business is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And the music business is just another fucked up business. I mean, you know, and, 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 and every business is fucked up, and when you get your ass kicked by it, it's really fucked up. doesn't matter what business it is. You know, my book is about reinvention. It's about teaching you how to survive life, and then hopefully you'll be around long enough to take advantage of, of the shit when the time comes. And, and it turns around on you. But, you know, there's so many people that have stories to tell about how badly they've been abused. And music business was run by thieves and marketed by thieves and and corruption. And, yeah, but so were a lot of other businesses. Right. Um, the, the, the question is how much are you going to learn about it and what are you going to do about it? You know, so I, 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 I've always said there's three kinds of people in this world. The people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen, and the people who go, what happened? <laughs> and 99% of the people who go, what happened? And those are the people that get their ass kicked, you know, all the time. And there's people who watch it happen and people who make it happen. And I always swore I'd be one of those two. I would never be what happened. So everything that happened to the band, good, bad, or whatever, every disaster that happened to the band, every every issue that came cr- crashing down on us was not, a, was not necessarily a shock to me. Um, our response to it, however, was novel in that we approached the, the response in a very kind of logical manner. And we didn't do it deliberately that way. I didn't know I was going to write a book. You know, when I joined the band, I was simply a guitar player. I certainly wasn't a business guy. Although, I was a drug dealer as a teenager, so I had basic business <laughs> right. skills, you know. And, and those business skills did serve me well because I was able to deal drugs in Europe while, while, while converting multiple currencies while on acid. So I guess I was, you know, <laughs> multi, I guess multitasking came early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but drug, but drug dealing is a people business, you know, and you got to be, you have to have relationships with people. So um, now the drug dealing, I talk about it because it's it's almost it's a cautionary tale. I don't leave the drug dealing part of the book out with, with any great joy and glory. The drug dealing and the drug using was a, it became disastrous at the end. It killed many of my friends. Right. And um, I mean, if there was going to be a reunion in my high school, it would have to be in a cemetery. 
So um, it was a disaster. It didn't start out as a disaster. It started out as like a hippy-dippy love affair with pot and ended up in a complete heroin nightmare. Right. And um, it devolved and it got ugly. And I got out of it in time. And then, you know, like I said to my mom in 1972, the good news is I'm, I'm, I'm done with drugs. No more drugs. The bad news is I think I'm going to become a cross-dressing female impersonating rock musician. <laughs> I don't know which one was worse for her. Yeah. Can you please start using heroin again? Because I don't know if I can handle that other shit. You know? Oh my God. So, um, so, uh, so I don't know. But obviously, then I took all those experiences and put it in my rock band and did, had no idea what I was getting into. And then I realized within a couple of years I was in a freaking alcoholic nightmare. Right. Uh, with just a bunch of dr- a bunch of alcoholics. And then, they, then we got rid of those guys and replaced them with, with methamphetamine junkies and you know it was like and then and then uh, you know like and then I got enough was enough was enough it was either build a band that was straight or or get out of the business because I couldn't handle it now the problem is try to put a straight band together in my business you know and it's hard because you know rock and roll is Keith Richards you know or whatever that implies you know so so it's not supposed to be that so to find people who are straight and willing to work hard that became the challenge right Chris Matt it, I, I remember watching a documentary on, on Access TV. It, I think it was like two Christmases ago. They played, after the documentary, they played like the Twisted Christmas right. special that they have. And I didn't realize that you guys did so many like covers and worked as a cover band for so many years while also crafting original material and slotting it in there. Was that, was that um, a business decision? Yeah, absolutely it was. No, we, we wanted to make a lot of money, so we were a very good cover band. Once we were established as a good cover band, we started making enormous amounts of money. We never starved, but we took the money and we put it back in the band, and what we did was we just slowly started adding in our own originals uh, as time went on, um, because the club owners basically don't care as long as the numbers stay up. They don't care what you do. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you can't just start out with originals. You, know, you had to like have a base of foundation, so we hired D because he could sing Zeppelin perfectly, you know, so we were doing Zeppelin, and, you know, Zeppelin was Alice Cooper and David Bowie, and that morphed into, you know, Priest and ACDC when they were making it, and then, if you listen to the way D writes these amazing songs, they're kind of like a hybrids of ACDC, Priest, and Alice Cooper for their anthemic, the largeness of their anthemic yes. uh, sounds. So that was the evolution of the band, so by the time the band was signed in 82, we already had nine years or ten years on us and thousands of shows played. So it, it, the, the novelty of playing in front of a lot of people, there wasn't any because the bar scene was unlike any other bar scene in the world. The bars held up to 5,000 people. Oh and so God. you would regularly play to, you know, like the, the average club side, by 1978, the average clubs held 1,500 people minimum, up to 5,000. And when you, you do that five nights a week, six nights a week, um, you know, after a while, so then we did an outdoor show to 22,000 people in 1979, so we'd already played into massive numbers and, uh, and already caused riots in clubs, and that was standard operating procedure for who we were, what we did. The documentary, We Are Twisted Fucking Sister, tells that whole story, and then my book just completes the whole picture right. of what yeah. I went through. And then the book also talks about all of the amazing mistakes we made. And how bad, you know, how big we made it, how much we crashed, and and then and then I go, I take the book as a bizwar. It's a business book and a memoir. I coined the phrase myself as a world's <laughs> first bizwar. 
And there, I gave it to my publisher. I said, here's a marketing genius move. It's a world first biz war. And I said, I'm going to teach the twisted method of reinvention, which I do. I am hired by corporations to give speeches. I just did one last week in Austin. I, I talked to a, a dozen million, multi-millionaires of companies you know, worth over $100 million. And they're, t they're listening to me. These guys are graduates. College graduates of business degrees, they're listening to a high school dropout, ex-drug dealer, ex-drug ex, ex addict, um, musician in a heavy metal band, who dropped, you know, dropped out of high school. And why? Because the lessons I learned are universal. And the lessons I teach are universal. So I teach the twisted method of reinvention, which is T-W-I-S-T-E-D, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline, one letter per phrase, and it teaches the whole history of how you can succeed in business by using those tools. Wow. Ever imagine you'd be here? I mean, starting back on Long Island's whatever, 50 years ago, you couldn't imagine you'd be here. Be, you mean like at this point in my life? Yeah, like a, you know, a, a public speaker, a heavy metal musician, you know, you've conquered well, pretty much all that stuff. Well, my daughter is fond of saying that if I can make money talking, I'm going to be the richest person on earth. You know, that was her <laughs> <laughs> to, to which I responded, if you could make money using a cell phone, you'd be the second richest person <laughs> right. on earth. Um, right. Well, no, but nothing. Look, I mean, I, I wasn't supposed to survive the 60s, and I did. And we weren't supposed to survive the 70s, and we did. And we weren't supposed to survive the 80s, and we did. You know, and, and then it all came crashing down, and we all went, we went bankrupt and lost everything. And then, you know, that's 12 years in the desert with that. And then we come back, and then, you know, the band has this enormous success on the festival circuit in Europe and South America, playing stadiums. And then our songs become the most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal. We're not going to take it, I want to rock. Right. I don't know if you could predict any of it, but then again, to be fair, if uh, if you look at the class of 73, of, of, of the quartet of rock bands that came out of 73, Kiss, ACDC, Twisted Sister, Judas Priest. If you asked any of us at that time, when we were all 20 years old, what do you think life was going to look like in the year 2021? Do you think any of us would have a clue? Seriously? Right. That's a good point. There's no way. Nobody would. No one. Kiss, ACDC, Twisted Sister, Judas Priest? I mean, no. There's no way we could have predicted how the world turned and became what it became so that, some, that we could have careers that, could, that but, existed. There's just no way. I right. Mean, I'm smart, and I can foresee a lot of things. I mean, you know, Keith Richards has a famous saying about the difference between him and Mick Jagger. And, and, and what he says is that Mick Jagger wakes up every morning and he goes, you know, what am I doing today, 10 days from now, 10 weeks from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now? Keith says, I get up every morning and I say, I got up this morning. <laughs> right. So I, I think you need a Jagger in every band. You know, you need a visionary. Uh, D was the creative visionary in Twisted. You know, we trusted his vision. I was the business visionary in the band. And, and it, you know, I look at Gene and Paul. How smart are those guys? Yeah. They're super oh, smart, you know. Um, I have Priest, you know, Rob Halford's a smart cookie. You know, he's yeah. a really smart guy, you know. Um, ACDC was really managed very well. You know, now all of us have, you know, all of us have been around for 50 years, so there's deaths in all of our bands, you know. Or or, or, or if not deaths, they, well, yeah, Kiss has band yeah. members who've died. Kiss has have band members that have, that have been tossed by the wayside because of drugs and alcohol. Yep. Uh, same thing happened to priests. You know, same thing happened, uh, you know, to, you know, ACDC had, you know, dementia. 
Yep. You know, uh, uh, what's his face, his brother? Uh, he had dementia. I mean, I, I'm sure, duh, uh, Bon Scott dies of alcohol poisoning, okay? And, and, and then Twisted Sister, we, you know, we had like, you know, we've had eight drummers and four of them are dead. It's like Spinal Tap, you know? They all combusted or something. Right. I don't know. They're all just kind of like, but, but AJ's dead. And I mean, Richie Teeter died. Joey Markowski died. Um, uh, Billy Spagger, the first guitar player, is dead. Uh, I mean, there's a... Yeah, that's life, man. That's like yeah. a history. All right. Well, I told Maria I would keep it right around 20, so that's all I've got. Chris, you got anything else? I don't, man. Uh, Jay, Jay, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us this afternoon. Um, it's meant the world to me. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. Listen, you know, I have a podcast, which is the JJ French Connection, and um, it's on Apple and, 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 and Spotify. And, and this week I have the two producers of the Grateful Dead documentary. And if you want to know how that goes, if you're a deadhead, you should listen to that because that's great. The book, um, Twisted Business, available on Amazon, uh, is, is a lot of fun. And, and, uh, and I appreciate your support of the book and the projects at Twisted Sister. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. Hey, before we go, can I get you to do a bumper for me? Just your name and you're listening to Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully it's not 10 years till we speak again. Thank you. Be well. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.